I'll invite you to turn with me again to Ecclesiastes. Uh, Today we will be starting chapter 2. We'll be looking at the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Read this together. Solomon writes, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was the reward, this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Hedonism is the theory that pleasure is the highest good and proper aim of human life. That pleasure is the highest good and the proper aim of human life. I I think it's undeniable that even if people around us don't use the word hedonism or aren't even familiar with that word, that our society has a great tendency to approach life in this way, as functional hedonists, pursuing pleasure. Uh, It is a deceptive and a seductive way of thinking. It caters, really, to human selfishness that is intrinsic to human nature, this side of the fall. In many ways, you and I do not need to be taught hedonism. Uh, It is quite natural in our fallen condition to self-indulge as opportunity arises. None of us here are immune to the temptation to think that increased pleasures, increased wealth, increased possessions will bring satisfaction, contentment. this, This remains a temptation, not just for those who are still stuck in their sinful nature, but also for believers. It can be very subtle in many ways. And as Solomon continues his quest here in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he turns to this matter of self-indulgence. He chronicles for us his pursuit of pleasure. 
And as we saw last week, uh, wisdom and understanding, uh, those things prove to have their limitations. And now he begins to test his claim that all is vanity uh, with the pursuit of pleasure, with the pursuit of self-indulgence. Maybe this is a good and valid end uh, to aim for in life. Maybe this provides uh, release and ease from the vanity of life. That, that Solomon is here uh, pursuing self-indulgence, I think is quite evident from the continual use of the words I and myself. If you just note verse 4, built houses, planted vineyards for myself. Verse 5, I made myself gardens. Verse 6, I made myself pools. Uh, verse 7, male, female slaves were born in my house. I had great possessions. Verse 8, I gathered for myself silver and gold. I got singers. Verse 9, I became great, and so on. This is is a self-indulgence that he is talking about. Solomon pursued this, and moreover, as is clear here, and as we even read in, in 1 Kings 10, he attained these things. He attained the most luxurious lifestyle of anyone First Kings on the earth at the time. That's what First Kings 10 said. And up to that time, even more, he surpassed those who were in Jerusalem before him, he says. He, he attained the rock star lifestyle, if you will. Now, even by today's standards, he obtained so much and so much pleasure and wealth. He has been there. And as one who has been there, he is reporting back to us his discovery. Namely, that the life of self-indulgence does not overcome the vanity of life, but rather it exposes it. The self-indulgent life does not overcome the vanity of life, but rather it exposes it. It is not a solution to this problem that Solomon has identified. So that's what this, this, uh, these verses are, are showing us. So our outline for the sermon, if you uh, appreciate outlines, uh, we're going to begin looking at the thesis. So the first thing is the thesis in verses 1 to 2, namely that the life of pleasure-seeking is vanity. That's his thesis. Then we're going to look, secondly, at the test. The test in verses 3 to 8, where he gives us the various self-indulgent pursuits that he went after. And then in verses 9 to 10, we'll see his summary, the summary, that he indeed attained greatness. And then finally, in verse 11, we have his conclusion, which is really his thesis restated, that the self-indulgent life is indeed vanity. So let's begin with his thesis. Verse 1 begins with the words, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. So we, we, we see here, Solomon turns now to a test. He's testing his heart. The things that we find in these verses, verses 1 to 11, are part of a test to see if these pleasures will produce meaning and result in profit at the end of everything, at the end of the day. Perhaps this will bring him satisfaction. He's seen limitations to wisdom and understanding and knowledge. Maybe a lighter approach to indulge will bring about some sort of ultimate satisfaction. And yet before he gets, we get into the specifics of what he tried, he briefly tells us his conclusion. Second half of verse 1, he says, but 
Behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? So his pursuit, he tells us right away, turned out to be empty. Pleasure, in addition to wisdom, understanding, pleasure also is part of the vaporous nature of life. The Hebrew word here that is translated pleasure can have this connotation of mirth, which means amusement typically expressed in laughter, which probably explains why he mentions laughter here. His test of self-indulgence then involves pleasure, mainly a kind of a light-hearted merriment. Uh, don't take things too seriously. Enjoy yourself. Have a good time. Laugh. Relax. Please yourself. And yet as far as providing a meaningful way of dealing with life and of all of its complexities and all of its difficulties of answering the big questions as a way of finding any sort of ultimate purpose and meaning and profit at the end of all things, he concludes that such an approach is mad. It's useless, he says. As we go through these verses, I would encourage you um, to just really consider all of this um, in a fresh way. I think we, we would probably all know and agree that the substance of life is not found in goods. It's not find, found in pleasing yourself. We know that that is the correct answer. But I also wonder how many of, how many of you doubt about his conclusion a little bit. That as you hear this, there's a small part of you that thinks, really? Again, you've heard this many times, but perhaps there's just this small part of you still that thinks just a little more stuff, just a little more pleasure will indeed satisfy. And again, this has a way of being a subtle thing within us, within our hearts. Uh, Maybe not something we would consciously say out loud or think and yet can still be there. And yet Solomon is giving his findings again for us here to remind us of the truth about this. And he's giving us his conclusion right up front as we begin, that this was a vain pursuit, even from coming from this man who, who really attained it. So this is his thesis. But then in verse 3, he starts recounting for us how he conducted this test. So it's point two here, the test. So you look at verse 3, he says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during a few days of their life. And so this test of pleasure began with alcohol. And it would seem that he used this as a means of trying to alleviate some of the pain of life, contributing to some of the lightheartedness that he was seeking. Perhaps this would be good medicine to some of the difficulties and pain. And yet his answer, of course, as he has already stated, is no. This was not the answer. Now it's interesting, and, and maybe even seems a bit odd, that he claims here in this verse that he was still, uh, his heart was still guiding him with wisdom. He's going to make a similar statement in verse 9 as he summarizes his venture. 
And it seems a bit strange because this seems, I, I su- would submit to, to many of us, seems like an odd pursuit, this whole thing, and yet he claims that he's being guided by wisdom here. Well, I think what this means is that, for one thing, this indulgence that he's talking about here uh, was not just pure abandonment over to his senses or abandonment of his senses over to this pursuit of alcohol. That all of this is part of his test. That, he, that uh, he's, he's conducting this philosophical search for meaning, which is why, what, what he is calling wisdom here. So, I, so again, wisdom literature is, is a wisdom, the, the word can be used very broadly. And uh, I think that's what's happening here. If you think of the word philosophy, it combines love and wisdom, love of wisdom. There are philosophers all throughout history. And he's conducting this as a test of a wise man is what he's saying. And so all of this, even as he's trying out drink, as he's trying out these different things, he hasn't just completely handed himself over to debauchery. He hasn't lost sight of his goal. Uh, Here's what one commentator, Dwayne Garrett, says. He experimented, talking of Solomon, with alcohol as a means of alleviating the pain of life. His attempt to embrace folly while still being guided by wisdom was an attempt to indulge in pleasure without being consumed by it. All will agree that the life of total dissipation and indulgence is reprehensible. We need no teacher to show us that. Rather, he wanted to know if rationally controlled indulgence and pleasure gave meaning to life. He did not become a drunk, his experiment was an experiment in pleasure, not debauchery. So again, this may have involved drunkenness along the way, but he hasn't completely just wholesale gone over into full-on debauched lifestyle. Another commentator says, Solomon is telling us that he remains somewhat objective. He's like a doctor examining the progress of his own disease. This is part of his experiment. This is what he's trying to communicate when he says he was still being guided by wisdom. It's by this pursuit of his. And so this self-indulgence continued, verse 4, with great projects designed for Solomon's satisfaction. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So Solomon created for himself um, an Eden-like paradise to enjoy. And certainly, it sounds enjoyable. It sounds like a nice place to vacation. Beautiful, even. But notice again the repetition of the word myself. Uh, He's doing this, trying to find satisfaction in it. Trying to find enjoyment in these works. And he continues in verse 7. With this pursuit, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. And so his acquisitions included slaves, these servants to do his bidding, to work for him. That certainly sounds like someone who's reached the top. Just pay people to do stuff for you or just bring them in, feed them, and they'll do stuff for you. It says he had large flocks and herds. Some of us, that may not be all that appealing, but it was something that indicated a tremendous amount of wealth back then. And again, he says, he's added more than anyone who has been in Jerusalem before him, more than his father David, more than any of the Jebusite kings, 
Going all the way back to the days of Melchizedek, Solomon has exceeded them all. And even in 1 Kings 10, as we read, he had exceeded all the kings of the earth at his time as well. His wealth had been unsurpassed. In fact, even in 1 Kings 10, if you recall, the Queen of Sheba said she didn't believe it. She heard of these things about Solomon, but when she got there, then she was shocked at just how it exceeded even what she'd been told. She didn't believe the wealth and the knowledge, the smarts and wisdom of Solomon until she got there and saw it all. Even the tales underestimated just how wealthy Solomon had become. Verse 8 carries on with this. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So silver, gold, foreign treasure from other kings and from other provinces. People came, and again, we read this in 1 Kings 10. They came and they brought treasure to him. Massive amounts of tribute. Not only that, but he accumulated singers, he says. Male and female singers. Now, this was a time when you could not just plug in your phone. or You don't even have to plug it in now. Just connect your phone and now you can just listen to music. And you can have almost the entire world of music right there on your phone through a subscription. And just any old time, you can just, pl- you can just listen to it. This is a pleasure we have at our fingertips. This was not, it was not so simple in Solomon's day. The average person would not have been able to just listen to music. And yet Solomon accumulated singers, accumulated musicians, He was able to have a concert. He was able to hear music, receive the pleasure and the joy of music, have concerts at his beck and call, basically. What a standout treat. Even today, that would be amazing. We all know how a good concert, live music, can be so much more enjoyable sometimes. But back then, how rare this would have been. And yet Solomon had it. Finally, there at the end of verse 8, the ESV says Solomon accumulated many concubines. The reality is we don't really know what that Hebrew word means. Um, The word concubine is ultimately an educated guess. And the ESV is being honest with you if you look at the footnote there in your text. It'll tell you that the meaning of the word is uncertain. They're, They're being honest with you. That's a good thing. That's helpful. Uh, the King James Version took this as a reference to musical instruments, which would fit the context. He's talking about singers. The Septuagint, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament from the 3rd century uh, B.C., long time ago, uh, they, they had this as male and female cupbearers. And yet most translations today believe, at least in the English translations, Uh, translate this as concubines. We believe that this is referring to a harem of women. And certainly, this is what Solomon did. We we know that. 
Uh, we read from 1 Kings 10, but if you go jump into, continue on into chapter 11, uh, we see the tale there where we're told that Solomon accumulated for himself 700 wives and 300 concubines from the nations. And tragically, this all contributed to Solomon's turning from the Lord as he built worship sites for his wives to try to please them and joined in the worship of their false gods and allowed it and permitted it in the land of Israel. But here in Ecclesiastes 2, if this is indeed referring to this group of women, then I think we know what pleasure it was that Solomon was seeking from them. To those who would desire such fulfillment, Solomon truly is the ultimate. As we put all of these things together that he lists in verses 3 to 8, surely we must conclude that Solomon had reached the very pinnacle of life. Again, even by today's standards of pleasure, he had it all. Consider these things. Alcohol, homes, yards, pools, wealth, sex, possessions, entertainment, music. These pursuits have not gone away. They still hold out promise of satisfaction and meaning in life. Solomon is describing a lifestyle that many today would dream of having. Would give maybe anything to have, to possess. This is who is writing this text for us. Solomon had arrived. And this is what he tells us in the summary, third point of the outline, in the summary in verses 9 to 10. Let's look at verse 9. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. He's telling you he arrived. He became great. He made it. And again, 1 Kings tells us this is true. And then again, he adds this line here, also my wisdom remained with me. Again, this seems odd. This all seems entirely, positively unwise. But again, this is his way of saying that this was all part of his test. This is all part of his search. Again, his wisdom as described in 1 Kings 10 includes his vast knowledge and insight into mysteries. The Queen of Sheba asked him, put to him all these hard questions, it says, and he was able to answer. This is all part of his wisdom. And so I think this reminds us here in verse 9 what he's saying here is that Solomon had intelligence and pleasure. He was smart and he was successful. And verse 10 continues the summary. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. So he summarizes the the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. He took it. If he desired it, he got it. He made it happen. He held nothing back. What he's telling us in these verses, he's summarizing now. This is just a summary of things. There was whatever he desired, he got. 
He doesn't say much about food, but certainly he ate well. And he tells us that his heart did find a measure of pleasure and satisfaction in his toiling. And he says that this was his reward for it. He enjoyed the building projects as he worked on them, as he accomplished them. There was some satisfaction in building his little self-serving kingdom. And that was, in and of itself, his reward in this. So even as he tells us this, that there was some pleasure in this, that this was his reward, he then gives us the conclusion in verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. So he steps back now and examines all that he's done, looking carefully at all of his works, all of these things that he had sought satisfaction in, in which he had found some pleasure, in which he had found some reward. And yet he concludes, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Here again is his conclusion that the life of self-indulgence does not overcome the vanity of life, but rather exposes it. It reveals it. He concludes that all of his striving was futile. It was a vapor. It was like clutching for wind. How true this is of pleasure. It's there one moment and then it's just gone the next. You've got it and then it's gone. It vanishes. You have a good time for a little while. You go to sleep. You wake up. And now what? On to the next pursuit of pleasure. It's part of this never-ending cycle of life in which you never arrive at the end of it. That's what Solomon is trying to tell us. And at the end of it all, as he steps back and looks at this, he says he's gained and profited nothing ultimately. This reminds us of back in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, when he talks about how all is vanity. He gives us the, the, the main text of this whole book. And he says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What does he profit? And here he's saying self-indulgence profits nothing in the end. It does not break the cycle of futility. It produces nothing ultimately lasting. This cycle of generations that come and generations go, it's true. Solomon was no better than anyone else. His generation would pass and he with it. And then what? And if you think about Solomon and consider the greatness of his empire, as we read in 1 Kings and all that he says here that he did and accomplished and wow, how great all this is. Think about how fastly, all, how fast all of that came to nothing. Right? His sons, in the life of his sons, the kingdom was split into two. And, and it does not get better. His great temple we see destroyed, raised to the ground under the Babylonians. It just did not last. Now, you think a few hundred years, that lasts quite a while. But here we are. Here we are. It's gone. It was rebuilt. Gone again. This is what Solomon's considering as he considers the big picture. And this life, this pursuit of pleasure, in the end, profits nothing. As he'll say later on here in chapter 2, we'll look at, um, I guess in a couple of weeks when I'm back preaching. At the end of it all, we all still die. 
What have we gained with a life of pleasure? It might distract, but it provides no meaningful solution to life. If you remember back in chapter 1, the eye is not satisfied with seeing. It just, it, it never ends. Pursuit of pleasure is part of the endless cycle that never arrives. In his commentary on Ecclesiastes, Benjamin Shaw writes, his, talking of Solomon, his conclusion is that not only does pleasure not satisfy, it does not profit. There is nothing to show for it at the end of the day. Those who devote themselves to pleasure find this out, but the deceitfulness of sin and of the promise and the temptation is such that the conclusion most pleasure seekers draw is not that pleasure does not deliver, but that they simply have not indulged enough, that just a little bit more is sure to deliver the satisfaction craved. That's it. Solomon has the ability here to see that, that this was a futile effort at the end. However many years it took him to to realize this, that's what he's communicating in in chapter 2. And and what Shaw says in that quote I just gave is that pleasure seekers understand this. They understand that pleasure fades and it evaporates, but that they don't draw the same conclusion Solomon does. Rather, they make the mistake, and this is the deceitfulness of this particular sin, They make the mistake of thinking they just need a little more. They just need a little something else, and then it will arrive. And then they will be satisfied. Now, you might think that all of this is maybe overly cynical. But if that's so, you're not listening to biblical wisdom. Consider this is not just, you know, every once in a while we hear of a a professional athlete or something like that. I remember Tom Brady saying this, you know, that there's got to be more than this. He's won all these Super Bowls and there's still some empty feeling. But this is not just some athlete or some unbelieving superstar out there wealthy person who can't seem to get it together. This is the very word of God speaking to you. Solomon knew all of these things from bitter experience, but he's also carried along here by the Holy Spirit to communicate this to us. That the self-indulgent life does not satisfy and it does not profit. That the answer is not just a little bit more, So we need to conform our thinking on this, instruct our hearts on this with Scripture. In terms of luxury and pleasure, um, the poorest of us possesses so much more of these things than the vast majority of human beings who have ever lived. Not just us in the West today, it's true. I think we we possess much more wealth and and pleasure than many in the world who are alive right now. But even if we go back through history, again, consider even just something like music that we take for granted with and get bored of and 
and, and, and don't know what to listen to. And it's, we're not satisfied with it. M- many people through church, his- or through church history, through all of history, haven't even had access to music. If you've ever had a vacation, if you watch any television, if you have clothes that you don't wear, if you have extra stuff that you need to store, if you drive a vehicle or two, if you shop at the grocery store and buy anything other than necessities, if you eat sugar, and many of us are trying not to eat as much sugar because we have so much of it, if you have running water, if you possess a thermostat in your house to dial in your preferred temperature, if you possess these things, and there's a thousand more we could talk about, then you have more pleasure at your fingertips than the vast majority of human beings ever have. So much of our lives are built around this very thing. What pleases me and what is comforting and comfortable for me. So much so that we don't even realize it. And yet, I ask you, is this enough? Do we live in a time when we, are, we have so much pleasure and luxury, when we are just generally a contented people? Are we a satisfied society? We might even have the audacity here to distrust Solomon's conclusions. Again, such is the deceitfulness of pleasure. We don't even think that we have pleasure or wealth or riches. This is how deceitful it is. We having so much when we feel, when you feel that tug of just a little more, I think you're proving what Solomon is talking about here. And he's giving us this conclusion from one of the wealthiest men who experienced as much pleasure as anyone, inspired by God himself. He gives us his conclusion. It's the wisdom for the ages. Now, it might seem like this is just a, a, a rage against possessions and against uh, any sort of wealth at all. But as con- Ecclesiastes continues, it's going to help us gain a proper and healthy view of pleasure and of uh, gifts, of goods. A healthy view where we are taught to receive these things and enjoy lawful pleasures as gifts from God. But before he gets to that, He needs to loosen our grip on this wrong-headed pursuit of pleasure, expose it for where it leads and for its emptiness that it is. So we're shown here that the pursuit of pleasure for pleasure's sake, for the sake of self-indulgence, is an empty venture. Pleasure in and of itself, just like all other idols, does not and cannot and will not deliver. So if this has been your purpose, if this pursuit of pleasure has been something that you've desired, maybe you've been frustrated in it, and so you've made some sort of peace with the fact that you may not, you know, attain all of these goods, but you're just sort of unhappily uh, sort of just making do. But But if internally... 
your great desire is still to be great and to have all this stuff and you still think that's what life, when life would really be good, then this is a summons for you to see the folly of this and to confess this to God. Again, one day you will die and stand before God in your sin. And what of your pleasure at that point? Yet the Son of God has come. The Lord Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He came, he died, he rose again from the dead. He did this that sinners might be forgiven. He has borne the sins of all who trust in him. And this includes the sins of jealousy, of self-indulgence, this pursuit of pleasure, all of the sins that have been mentioned here. And so if this has been your pursuit, turn from it, confess it to the Lord, trust in Christ that you might find forgiveness of your sins, reconciliation with God. And to the kids, to young people, I would just encourage you to, to see and hear in this, the scriptures, the truth. To embrace what is taught and said here. Uh, that the, a life of just, that's all about you, that's all about you finding and pursuing pleasure and whatever feels good, whatever you just think is good and right. There's going to be lots of temptations to go down that road. To live your life that way, pursuing everything for yourself. It's the, it's the world we live in. It's what lots of people do. There's going to be temptation to do it. And I would just encourage you to remember the words of Solomon. To remember that that is an empty lifestyle. That that will not satisfy. That it is a lie. And to look to the gracious Savior. To look to Jesus. To follow him. To find forgiveness in him. And to find your meaning and your purpose in life. In scripture. Not first and foremost in pleasure. And for all who are trusting in Christ, be reminded again of the folly of sinful pleasure-seeking over against seeking pleasure in the things of the Lord, in trusting Him, in serving Him, in receiving what is good as kind gifts from Him, of having those good things you receive ultimately lead you to praise, to thankfulness to God. Be reminded that this scripture is what is true. That the temptation, temptation of sinful pursuit of pleasure is a deception. God does not include this here. He does not warn us of this because he doesn't want us to enjoy ourselves. He's not telling us this because he hates you and he's just a prude. But he knows what's best. And he knows that self-indulgence will not satisfy. That it is an empty pursuit. That's what he's telling us. It cannot do for you what only he can. And so he's guiding you in and through this text, away from false hopes and vain pursuits, to remind you of that which is eternal and that which is temporal, passing, vain. Hebrews 11.24 says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. 
Not all the pleasures listed in chapter 2 here are sinful, inherently sinful. But when they become ultimate, or when your joy terminates on those things, instead of the giver of good gifts, God, then we have crossed the line into sin. And so seek to receive good things as gifts from God, having them drive you to him in thanksgiving. Be convinced that pleasure is not our ultimate aim. Be wary of the fleeting nature of pleasure that sin promises. This is a great season, I think, in our lives to consider these things. A time when there's a lot of uncertainty, uh, when there's threats of possible increase in Christian suffering. As we consider all that we have, the good gifts God has given us and how we enjoy them, and as we consider the possibility of losing those things, it is good to have the Lord test our hearts to consider these truths again. And as you fall short in these matters, which you will, remember the reproach that Christ bore for you and his righteousness that is yours by faith that is not by works in this area or any other area of your life. And be content to be found in Christ, though the world mock you for not joining in their vain pursuit of self-indulgence. With Moses, may we put off the fleeting pleasures of sin and consider the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, our world, as with Moses looking to the reward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do confess that we We so often do desire more. We are often discontented with the things that you have given us, with the good gifts that you've granted us. Father, we too often take those good gifts and rejoice in those things and don't receive them as good gifts from you. Rejoicing in your generosity. Father, we confess this to you. We ask you for Forgiveness, and we pray that you would help us to be conformed to what your word says. Instruct our hearts as we read your word, as we hear these things, as we read what you tell us about these matters. That you would take our hearts off of the things of the world. Father, we know this doesn't mean we're to go hide and have nothing to do with any good thing or any pleasure. But again, may we receive that which is lawful pleasure and do so with joy and with thanksgiving. May it increase our praise of you. Father, we remember that you've instructed us in your word that we cannot serve you and money, for we will love one and hate the other. We cannot serve two masters. So I pray that you would help us to love you, to trust you, to rejoice in you and in your kingdom above all, that we would 
Do what we do as a way of trying to serve you and honor you and not trying to attain satisfaction in pleasures and in goods. Father, we thank you for your provision of righteousness in the righteousness of Christ. We thank you for your grace and mercy. As often as we fall short, God, give us the grace and ability to look to Christ and see a great Savior who continues to intercede for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.